You hear that? Wow, I didn't know what to do just now. Kind of nice, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Today, I'd like to take you across the pond to the United Kingdom, Pete. A study of music and its effect on anxiety was conducted by Dr. David Lewis Hodgson of Mind Lab International. For the study, participants attempted to solve difficult puzzles as quickly as possible while connected to sensors. The puzzles induced a certain level of stress, and participants listened to different songs while researchers measured brain activity as well as psychological states that included heart rate, blood pressure, and rate of breathing. One song used was called Weightless by the group Marconi Union. It's actually the one we're hearing in the background right now. And it resulted in, get this, a striking 65% reduction in participants' overall anxiety and a 35% reduction in their usual physiological resting rates. Can you believe it, Pete? 65%. This song. That's amazing. That sounds like every song like this. (laughs) Like... (laughs) This is a type of music, and they all sound exactly like this. The group that created Weightless, however, Marconi Union, did so just for this reason, in collaboration with sound therapists. Its carefully arranged harmonies, rhythms, and bass lines help slow a listener's heart rate, reduce blood pressure, and lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol. So it was designed to do this, and it really works. You can look this up. It's free on YouTube, Spotify, everything. For anyone out there that's ever feeling stress, it's called Weightless by Marconi Union. I've listened to most of it, and I almost fell asleep. (laughs) And actually, when I finished reading the article about it, it said, of the top track, which was this one, they studied about 20 different tracks. Dr. David Lewis Hodgson said, Weightless was so effective, many women became drowsy, and he would advise against driving while listening to the song because it could be dangerous, which makes me think I really should have put some sort of advisory at the top of this episode because people probably listen to us in cars, and now we have like half as many listeners. <laughs> So, uh, on with the show, and yes, the police and ambulances are on their way. Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Tommy Metz Third, And I'm Pete Wright. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Hey, anxiety gang, reach out to us. Send us the story of your anxieties to whatsthatsmell.net. Actually, no, don't do that. Instead, go to whatsthatsmell.net, and there's a little Donate Your Anxiety button, and you can give us as much or as little information as you want you will be our listener submission and we will learn and laugh at you nope we will learn about your anxiety and laugh alongside of you and everything will be great and you'll be our best friends pete anything to add in this beginning you're doing fine (laughs) then with that i'll go first pete this week if you'll have it i'd like to tell you a brief story about a ferocious storm Ooh, send me there, Tom. I will. And, you know, of course, storms happen all the time. But what makes this one interesting is that it occurred entirely indoors. Oh. 
This tale comes from someone named Rodney Bliss. On the morning of October 14, 1997, a Microsoft employee looked at their entry in the company global address list, and they noticed that in addition to distribution lists for their team, they were also on a distribution list called Bedlam DL3, or Bedlam Distribution List 3. The employee decided that they were not comfortable being on someone else's distribution list, and so they took the absolute worst possible action to address the issue. They wrote an email. They wrote to Bedlam DL3, subject, why am I on this mailing list? Please remove me from it. Everyone on Bedlam 3 got a copy of the please remove me email. Some of them hit reply all. Yeah, take me off too. And that message went to everyone. Soon others were joining in. Yeah, I don't want to get be on this list either. What is this list? The email chain started getting out of control with reply alls. This is what's known as an email storm. Now, Several people then started saying, stop using reply all, you're just making it worse. (laughs) But those messages went to everyone. Now, here's the thing. The Bedlam DLs were never intended to be used for email. They were set up by the IT department to map employees to Windows server security groups and as general catch-all groups. I don't know what any of that means. The point is it was never supposed to be used for emails. Bedlam 3 had 13,000 names on it. The storm quickly flooded the network and completely shut down the mail service. Remember, this is at Microsoft. Microsoft got shut down. Before it was done, it was estimated that over 15 million emails were generated in the space of about an hour. The storm pushed 195 gigabytes of data around the network, and that's just for text in emails. Oh, my God. Pete, this week I have something For you, in addition to this, why am I talking about this, Pete? I have something unprecedented for you. I'm giddy with anticipation. Uh, I have not one, but two listener submissions about the same (gasps) topic. What? The dreaded reply all email function. Okay. Uh, I'll explain how I have two in a little bit, but we'll start with the original submission sent in by... Yes, we did agree to write whatever name they put down. So this was sent by (laughs) Paul Diaper Schultz. I do not believe that that is a real name. Old Diaper Schultz. Old PDS. Okay, so Paul Diaper Schultz, Dipes, wrote this. My latest anxiety is due to a work email. I am a teacher, and we are all working from home for the most part right now. After hours of being on Zoom each day, our administration called a last-minute change to our planned teacher planning day, which is usually just a little bit of work and mostly a day off. And they changed it to a full day of professional development classes on Zoom. One of my colleagues was so ticked off that she wanted to share her thoughts with her friend. But instead of emailing her friend, she, by mistake, replied all and sent an email to the entire higher faculty and administration that showed her true feelings of this change. Her reaction was amazing. It was what all of us felt, and it was filled with fabulous expletives that we all wish were commonplace in work emails. <laughs> a few minutes later, when my colleague realized her mistake, she wrote a second email apologizing for the first and that sending it to everyone was a mistake, yada, yada, yada. And now I am really afraid to write emails at work. Because teaching from home is so unpleasant, we are all filled with a lot of anger and anxiety towards our situation and, at times, to our bosses. But even though I can see who the email is sent to, I am scared to send emails 
emails that say anything remotely bad. So I'm choosing to write normal things via email, and if I have a funny or snarky comment, I send it to my colleague friends by text. Also, because my employers own the web domain, I'm always a little nervous that they have the power to read all of our emails. I'm sure they don't, but I guess they could, and so I'm nervous to say anything that isn't positive or productive. That was a whole thing. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of stuff. Right so there. while uh, Paul does write about that he's worried about writing emails, I think I'd like to concentrate on the reply all part. The yeah. mistaken the mistaken emails. And this is the second one. I was chatting about using this anxiety on the phone with a friend, and it was actually friend of the podcast, Scott Crazy 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 Lamb. And he <laughs> told me the following. I was in the waiting room at my doctor's after a very minor procedure. I was a little out of it and pulled out my phone for some light distraction, as you do. And I noticed a notification on my phone from LinkedIn that I'd long ignored because it's LinkedIn. Who cares? But I opened the app and there's something to the effect of you have 1,300 new requests, or at least that's how it read to me. Would you like to accept them? I wasn't thinking super clearly and was like, wow, that seems like a lot, but sure, and clicked yes. And then LinkedIn emailed the 1,300 people it had pulled from my contacts list when I had signed up, including everyone from the CEO of the company I worked for at the time to my ex-wife and her parents. Oh, my God. There is nothing, he says, there is nothing I can think of more mortifying than how many people received a thirsty, desperate, I would like to add you to my personal, my professional network on LinkedIn email from me that day. Oh, wait, I can. The absolute worst part is that LinkedIn automatically followed up two weeks later (laughs) to all the people who didn't respond. He ended by saying, I am feeling anxious just retelling this. Oh uh, my God! Yeah, I am. Oh. So we we have talked about email anxiety before, inbox anxiety, but we've never mm-hmm. really taken on replying all nightmares. Have this ever happened to you? What is your personal relationship with this, Pete? Uh yes, in a slightly a slightly different way. Okay, um, it was in a news group. Remember news groups? Uh, sort of. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was one of those where I inadvertently spammed like. 15,000 news groups on the easystreet.net server and the oh, no. CEO or, or the COO of the company because I did it with my company account, my email account, and that is connected to the the, the easystreet.net people. And they so they knew that somebody at my company, i.e. me, accidentally or inadvertently sent this thing under my company email address to 15,000 news groups and <laughs> 15,000 um, yeah and, and they Pete. said yeah that's what that's they should have renamed that news group server to bedlam i can't think of a better <laughs> uh thing than bedlam yeah <laughs> to call this kind of an incident and so it's terrible when you pick up the phone, especially because I was the tech contact at my company at the oh, time. No. I had no excuse. And he's like, I just need you to know, like, according to our policy, I should ban you from oh, our God. server. Tech and, guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm calling you because you have to have a story for why this happened, right? Right. right? So Oof. we worked it all out. It was fine. And now I'm sure we can laugh about it. John at Easy Street, if you're still hanging out listening to this show, 
I'm still sorry. I think about it all the time. Uh, what if John is actually Diaper Schultz? I was like, in 1998, I'm going to say that happened. Wow. It's terrible that it's yeah. still on my mind. Yeah. yeah I... No, this is a horrible thing. What about you? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Uh, at the end of this, I have found some tips about how to prevent this kind of thing from happening. I found them in the New York Times. And is one of one... them, don't turn on your computer ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one is use, yeah, just use envelopes and stamps. Um, no, one is actually one that I have been using already for many years that has stopped me from doing it. But no, I have sent, um, I wrote a draft for a fundraiser email for a short film we were doing and sent it to the producers uh, <laughs> saying with all the stuff of like, I don't know if this is going to work and this is probably dumb and all of this. And I sent it to <laughs> oh, the- it included all your notes. Yeah, oh, and included yeah. all my notes. And I sent okay. it to the everyone we were going to send to the fundraiser. So they all got like an in person. I yeah. have multiple times um, made jokes involving a lot of expletives, not realizing that the original email had people's parents, little <laughs> sisters on it. And I've just been like, yeah, well, he's a real blankety blankety blue send. And then it was TJ, TJ, my friend TJ wrote, and he was like, yeah, like my entire family's on this email thread. And I was like, Goodbye! no, it's a disaster. And I think the reply all is such a weird Trojan horse of mystery, not mystery of misery, uh, yeah. that is just waiting there. Just this one button can screw up so much stuff. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and it's so it happens so fast. It happens so fast. Right. And and I, I think it's really interesting. And I hope we get a chance to talk about this because there are, I think, a number of tools, too, yes. that uh, you're watching like email clients are changing. And I know they're changing because of this. Right. I know that that's why this is happening. So yeah. I don't know where you want to go from here, but I totally get it. Well, we can just go right into that. I mean, I think the the uh, anxiety is universal. <laughs> yeah. The fact that there isn't some sort of built in two-step verification mm -hmm. is insane. That would be the easiest thing to do is if you're sending it to more like a group of people for it to just say, eh, are you sure? sure? You sure? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be two-step like you also have to say on your phone and in your other yeah, laptop. Right, right. Just right there. It'd be like, hey, boyo. <laughs> you sure you yeah. said that? Yeah. You say the F bomb 266 times in <laughs> exactly. this email. Yeah. And we just want you to know there are 1,300 people on the, on the list. <laughs> right. The fact that that doesn't exist is maddening, um, but I did find some things about if this happens. First, if this happens, here's a way to mitigate it, yeah. and then things about how to not let it happen. Do you want me to share those real quick? I, I think we should start with the the ways to mitigate it when it's happened, because that's the anxiety, like right. the fear of what the hell am I going to do right. if I accidentally do this and my boss and my boss's five-year-old are both on the same list. <laughs> And, and my totally boss done is a five-year-old. Is a five-year-old. And I work. Five -year -old. Yeah, I work in a ball pit. <laughs> yes, that's and right. It's a very. <laughs> uh, well, number one, most people just say, "Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it." <laughs> just feel feel like a monster person Sorry, for forty-eight everybody. hours. Yeah, just apologize and you just say, "Well, uh, that was awkward." You know, just if you call it out by saying, "Oh, well, that was awkward." Yeah. Everyone has this fear, and almost everyone has been through this, so usually they will be fine and gracious about it. But then a writer named Sharon Tom pointed out something that I thought was really interesting. Uh, she pointed out that you don't have to diffuse the fallout alone. 
enlist someone you have a good rapport with to reply all to your reply all and say something funny to cut the tension like great story bro we appreciate the update she suggests <laughs> the other person helps by taking the focus and embarrassment away from you and pivots into humor or something useful i really like that yeah, I think too. that's really helped just to reach out to one person and be like, quick, I need you to do this right away. Just because everyone, probably part of the worst thing is it's never going to be as bad as you think it is. And just that heavy silence, that weighted yeah. blanket of silence when you're like, oh, no, is the most disgusting feeling in the entire world. So that's a way to control it. I It was back in season two, we did an episode in which your anxiety was fear of going viral for the wrong reason correct right you remember yep. that yeah and i feel like this is tied maybe tangentially to that hmm. because there is always that feeling of what's going on on the other end of an email that i sent to the wrong list like is there a chance that somebody took that email and they're doing something with it Ooh. Ooh. Which I am not attached to. Like, maybe they forwarded it to another list, and now it's completely out of my hand. And that list is people who can fire Pete for doing something stupid. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> sure. Like, just sort of adding it to their quiver if they yeah. ever need it. And yeah. so, like, that's the thing. That's the story we tell ourselves. At least I tell myself in the back of my mind, as soon as I send an email, is like, what could happen with that email? Knowing that it could go anywhere. Uh, after I send it. And so that's one of the things that kind of keeps my foot on the brake when I send an email now Sure, um, is because I'm aware of what happens when I send an email and then get on a plane. And then I'm right. out of touch for oh, six because hours of that lady. or something. Right. Yeah, because that of that lady. That one woman that we talked about, yeah, that went to Africa, and by the time she landed, her life was over. Her life was, yeah, her career yeah. was over. Uh, so th those are the things I think about. And that gives me that sort of, that that level up anxiety of, of right. fear of, of what's going on. Because viral is a loaded term. And in this case, we're not talking about viral in the broad sense of, oh, everybody's sharing you on Facebook. But what we are talking about is you can go viral at work. And it can also be bad, right? right? Like you can be the guy who sent that email and that can be not, not a good place to be. Yeah. What? That scares me. I'm just trying to think of the things that you're constantly writing that you could get incredibly <laughs> in trouble for. <laughs> like you're constantly just like in today's homemade bomb news. And it's like, Pete. Oh, <laughs> I guess, I guess that's one of those things that I wouldn't want to write. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for putting it in, in literally no uncertain terms. <laughs> I didn't really use much of a euphemism for that, did I? I just kind of went right for it. Uh, again, that's Pete Wright. <laughs> um, there, okay, so you wanted to talk about, though, because you will know this more than me, I did learn that there's you can give yourself what's called an oh-no window. In some email yeah. programs, you can set up what can be called a freak-out delay. Your email will wait 60 seconds or more after you click send, giving you a window to be like, oh, no. And apparently, you can set this up in Microsoft Outlook and Gmail. And if you're a Mac person, there's something called Mail Butler to add to Apple Mail. Have you heard of these yeah. things? Okay, yeah, all of them. Yeah. And I use an app called Spark. It, it doesn't give me 60 seconds. I think you can set it. You can customize it. It's just five seconds for me because usually that's when I notice. Right. And it's a command Z kind of a thing. It's an immediate like control Z undo. You press send and it's got a little countdown in the corner that says five, four, 
three. And as long as you hit Command-Z in that corner, you're okay to do it. The other thing I do, like this is another tool of the app, but a lot of these apps now have these kind of baked-in things. I schedule email a lot. Have you ever played with scheduling email? Yes, I have a thing through Firefox Mm -hmm. that I use to do that called... I don't know, <laughs> but it's a button that I <laughs> press. I don't know. Maybe it's through Gmail. It's through something. It would be oh, in oh, Gmail. Bo- it's a boomerang. Plug-in. Boomerang. It's yep. something called yep. boomerang. Yes, it's not through That's Firefox. It. Yes, I have done that. So that is something that I think is really useful because look at the context of when you're writing something that might be off kilter, when your brain is not maybe firing on all cylinders. And that might be when you are like working late into the night and you don't intend to say things. You, the lights are all dimmed and you're three glasses of wine in and yep. and you might feel kind of reactive. Well, I find if I schedule emails that I write late at night to go out at like 9 a.m. the next morning, then I have time to sleep on it and wake up yes. and think, oh, yes. maybe I should just reread the stuff that I wrote last night. It was kind of controversial and I was a little bit crazy. So I'm going to set that to just not send uh, and maybe revisit that draft. So that's that's one thing. So the de- the oh no delay right. is great, and scheduling email is great, and there are lots of different tools to do that. Um, right, but I or love you can just Spark leave it mail. in drafts. That's what you I do. If I'm writing, I sort of have a deal with myself after a certain time at night, just like you, uh, yeah. when it's around nine o'clock, to be like, uh, if I I reread it and reread it and just be like, there's no wor- reason. It's midnight. Yeah. Let's check this. And many times right. I've been like, oh, no, that's all well, in wingdings. I think <laughs> I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that, which is don't write email in an email app. Write email like in notes or mm. text edit or whatever. Like if you have an email that you're fired up about, make sure that you draft your email outside of the right. email app. Because as soon as there's a two person in the two field, you're potentially like in a position to screw yourself up. So I, I just think that's an important, that might be an important thing. To Very think much about. so. And you actually just sort of backed into the reason that I have not made a mistake like this in years. And mm-hmm. it's something that um, David Pogue in the New York Times pointed out, enter the address last. Yes, So absolutely. even if you do, if you don't want to do it in notes or in Word or something, and you do want to do it in the compose, get rid of that entire address field. That's yep. the easiest thing to copy-paste, write out the entire email, and then go back and add the yeah. addresses. That's what I do incessantly, all the time. Yeah, Because that also stops me. I also used to have a real problem with getting so excited in my email that somehow it just like goes out word by word. Like I would just keep pressing send too early and be like, sorry, chapter two. And so now that doesn't happen as much. It still made it just to happen, but not as much. Yeah. So, right. yeah. The, the last tool that I want to mention about uh, that I love in, again, in Spark, it sounds like a big fat Spark advertisement, but it's, yeah. I, I assure you it's not. This is just a feature that I think has limited that for me, which is Spark has this team thing built into it. So if everybody on your team is also using Spark, and you are all connected to one another, um, then what happens when you get an email, let's say you need to talk to somebody else about that email. Instead of forwarding that email to someone else, you just add them to the internal like Spark connection of that email. So I say, like, I need to add this to my partner uh, on my team. And then a little chat window appears below the email that's attached to the email message. So you're actually talking about the, Im- the email 
with somebody else without having to forward it back and forth. Like you're oh. talking about it in a chat window inside of Spark Mail. Right. And you can do shared drafts and things like that. So you can open that a new draft email. It almost kind of sounds email. like a Google Doc. If it you're is, both, you can it's both. It's exactly it. That is exactly it. Time. You can yeah. share email drafts, that kind of thing. And I find as soon as you stop like, in, like instinctively forwarding to the people that you think need buy-in on it, but actually start working on it with them in real time, that has removed the opportunities for right. that kind of like quick screw up forward or reply all kind of a thing for me. It's just it's just like it's reduced the number of conditions that would allow that kind of weird reply all thing to happen for me. Yeah. So I think that's it's really useful. So any if you have an email client that would allow you to do that kind of stuff, it's transformational. It's really, really fun. So to Paul Diaper Schultz, is that a is that a nickname? Is it Paul Schultz? But everybody calls him Diaper. No, it was uh, it's hyphenated. So I think he oh. kept his married name after I was, he married a diaper. I was thinking about Scarface. My right. friend is Nick the Pig. <laughs> You're right. Uh, yeah, no. So our our deep thanks to Paul Diaper Schultz and uh, Scott Lamb uh, for their contributions. I, I demonstrates there is a market for email anxiety. Still, Tom, we haven't fixed it. And just to end this segment, unless you have more to say, I wanted to share a really interesting version that happens to someone in my family of oh, this. I can't wait. Constantly. Yeah. Is it your dog? It is not my dog. It is my father. <laughs> because oh. he and I, uh, I'm Tommy Metz the third. He's Tom W. Metz Jr. So we're both Tom Metz. The amount of times he's tried to text me or email me and he wrote it to himself <laughs> is <laughs> legion. <laughs> I have so he he writes himself and then he forwards me the thing and he goes whoops sent this to myself again and it's happening an alarming amount of time <laughs> so those of you that have yeah what what are those called seconds thirds fourths yeah. all of that we're in a real uphill climb already that's so, amazing yeah it's <laughs> amazing I don't I don't have any of that uh, yeah I don't even have a joke it's just amazing. <laughs> I had a joke that was related somehow to me and my dad both being Mr. the Mr.'s right, but it just oh, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't So in happen. a way, it's with your joke, funny. you press send too early. <laughs> you hadn't figured it out yet. <laughs> you need an Ono oh button for Dam your brain. Damn it all, Tom. Now I have to include this whole bit. After World War I, Australian soldiers discharged from service were given land by the government for farming in Western Australia. The thing is, the land there was often criticized, and these new farmers had a rough go of it. Then, in 1929, these farmers were asked to increase their wheat production just at the onset of the Great Depression, the government pledging subsidies to make it happen. They never delivered. The wheat market cratered, Farmers threatened to harvest and not deliver the wheat. The emu is the second largest living bird related to the ostrich and spends its time cruising around Australia on foot, indulging its model stature at six foot two inches and occasionally breaking into sprints as fast as 31 miles per hour. Emus are foragers. They eat plants and insects when they can, but have been known to go weeks without eating or drinking anything at all. In the early 1930s, 
This brave bird discovered the farm settlements in Western Australia and made it their home. 20,000 of them, in fact. The emu army ate through those fields, ate them fallow, and destroyed the fences, making way for rabbits and other varmints to plunder further. Thankfully, these farmers were also soldiers, and on November 2nd, armed with two Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition, men engaged the emu foes in Campion. They attempted to lure the birds into an ambush, but failed, killing only a few. Over the course of a few days, the soldiers managed to kill close to 500 birds at a cost of 2,500 rounds of ammunition and a significant dose of humility. According to ornithologist Dominic Seventy, the machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. And this in the field report from the leader of the defending human troops, Major Meredith. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. This early engagement was the first of many. From 1932 through 1950, the Emu War spread with farmers requesting military support year after year after year. In fact, the Emu War is a terrific example of a cause which, when supported, can achieve greatness. The invention of the exclusion barrier fence, for example, was a key strategic defense initiative for the farmers, and lest we forget, a resurgence of the Emu War in the internet era has made for extraordinary memes and a video game titled eponymously, Emu War. This is what happens when a cause is eventually well-supported. If you're looking for a cause to support, we encourage you to choose Season 5 of this fine podcast, What's That Smell? For just $35, a one-time investment, you're contributing to the production of Season 5 of this show, 12 meaty episodes of sometimes funny anxiety content. Plus, you'll get a sticker and an official certification of friendship between us. Now shipping. Visit whatsthatsmell.net to learn more and lend your support today. Tom. Pete. I've been told I need to open with a joke. So here comes the jokes. Uh-oh, okay. What do you call Batman when he skips church? Uh, what? <laughs> You're not even going to try? Oh, sure. Um, I just wanted to maybe get this over with as soon as possible. <laughs> when he skips church, he's a bat-sin. Yeah. Nope. He's a... Oh, that's good. Bat... He's a... The caped... <laughs> I'm not good at this. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna hate yourself when you hear what it is. Are you ready? Uh yeah. Batman when he skips church. Yeah. Talking specifically about the Nolan era Batman, you would be Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm glad I didn't try to guess too much longer because I, I was am really too. I think we could have yeah. gone to some really dark places. <laughs> 
This is only loosely related to my anxiety today, but I I did get an outsized chuckle, uh, far bigger maybe than that joke deserves. So here's a quick quiz for you. Do you aim to please others? Yes, I do. Okay. Do you feel intense feelings of separation anxiety when someone important to you leaves? Yes, I do. Do you have reluctance to commit fully to others? Um, in it, in what kind of way? Like romantically? Sure. Yeah, I think I I'm guarded. Yes, guarded. Good. Nailed it. All right. How about? Do you have uh, difficulty achieving emotional intimacy? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Emotional intimacy. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter because you're already you're three for four of the first oh, ones. So you're okay. already. I mean, you wrote the check. You signed your name. Don't worry about it. Oh Do no. Do you feel insecure or unworthy of love? Yep. <laughs> Yikes! That one okay. was right there. Are you? Are, are you what, if, what if you just started that question and I finished it with most of the words? Do you ever feel insecure? Not worthy of love? Yes. Uh, do you find that you are hypersensitive to criticism? Yes. Okay. Do you quickly attach to unavailable partners or have an intense attraction to celebrities? Mm, uh. Well. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. If you answered uh, yes to some of those things, you may have a fear of abandonment. <gasps> I do. <laughs> that was scary. <laughs> Let's talk, tell me about that. One, I've been, as you know, I've been in therapy and we've been working a lot on a lot of things. Yeah. And one of the things that everything keeps sort of boiling down to about my anxieties is if you go far enough along, if I follow one thread and go long, 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 it always ends in, and then that will make people not like me and I will, and I will be alone. Oh God. If only you were like like less charismatic and lovable, then (laughs) maybe I would find any sympathy at all. But your personality dictates just how untrue that is. I get it because that's the way anxiety works. I have to be lovable, Pete. It's all I have. (laughs) Please don't leave me. I'm so lovable. Well, let me tell you why this is on my mind today, because I think I I have the same thing. And I do this. I do. Well, I'll tell you in a minute. So this is on my mind because, you know, the the if you heard about the pandemic. Yep. Um, yep. It's uh, called the uh, coronavirus. COVID, I have a Google uh, alert 19. for in case anything. <laughs> you don't want to miss any news right. about COVID. Um, and so, you know, everything's been closed. My wife is a, a speech and language pathologist in the schools. Mm-hmm. She works with rural school districts. So most of what she does is on Zoom and has always been on Zoom. Mm. But historically, her job has been like one out of every four or five weeks, she will travel to rural Oregon and she will uh, be the on-site speech pathologist for for kids in very, very small schools and in schools that don't actually have a full-time support there. So she helps kids learn how to speak and it's a wonderful and noble job and she has not been able to do that part of the job for a long time. Mm. And today, as we record this, we are at a point where the schools have been kind of largely opened in in small districts and kids are going and teachers are figuring it out. And my wife has now been vaccinated. Oh, and, right. That's right. Right? Right. Uh, it is great. And so she left. She got in the car. She packed all of her shoes and snow boots and, yep, still snowing. And she left the house. And even though we have now, I'm going to say like 
years, 10 years of experience, the rest of us, you know, the dog, the cat, the kids, me, of figuring out what to do when mom leaves, today <laughs> wow. is the hardest it's ever been. Uh, and Because you're out of practice. Those, right. Well, well, we're out of practice, and I think all of those feelings of grief that are now magnified by... The fact that it's still COVID out there and her vaccine is 95%. Actually, you know, she's only had one of the shots, so mm. she's actually 50% protected now. But there's another 50% that isn't. What about that percent? Right. And uh, and the fact that, you know, she's going into these schoolrooms and she's she's done this. She's an expert at this. This is her, her jam. And yet she left and we were bereft. Wow. As a family, like we were just like, what do we do now? What, <laughs> what could we, what do we possibly do? There is like, clearly we need to just hang it up for the rest of the week. And she's gone for like four days. Like it's not, it's not the end of the road. She drove oh, there, but she's she not on a plane. For, okay. I think I didn't right? understand that she'd be gone for, yeah, you said that she's packed all of that stuff. Why would she do that just for a day trip? Got it. Yeah. Four right. days seems right. like an enormously long time in today's in current today's situation climate and i think i it surprised me so much just how all of those feelings of like oh my god like first of all leaving us and like going out there and now i'm just all i have to do is worry about you that it started making me think about um just these feelings of being left and mm -hmm. where did that come from and how did that start and so i am uh I I started looking up like some of the root of of where it comes from, and I I didn't start. I have spent a significant amount of time trying to boil down. <laughs> Got it. Like I just maybe surveyed kind of headlines yeah. on Reddit. I'm just passing uh, someone on the street. I was like, hey, what do you think? It's mostly Pepe memes. Don't worry about it. And so <laughs> um, so I started looking at it, but I'm just I I feel like this is uh, worth a little bit more exploration because I think you have come back to something that that gets me when I find myself embroiled in these feelings. It is usually when. I talk a really good game. Like, mm. I, I say, no, I'm okay being alone. I'm an introvert. I use that all the time. I'm an introvert. But then when I find myself alone for, you know, a couple of days, uh, I start getting incredibly sad. Like, mm. puzzlingly, grief-strickenly sad. And I, I never really put my finger on it until I start looking at this stuff, right? That right. if it, when I'm feeling that level of grief, I have no one to please. I have those feelings of separation anxiety. There is no one to tell me that I'm doing a good job at whatever it mm. is I'm doing, right? right? I have, I have nobody to live up to or for. And I can get into that deflationary sort of emotional spiral is that ring a bell 100 percent, and the spiral because that was something that i have learned repeatedly about myself i've gotten better at it but uh -huh. i still need help sometimes is because of the um if i'm anxious then i tend to my old pattern used to be to self-isolate because i'm afraid yeah. i'm not myself and if i'm not myself then let's follow the thread then i yeah. won't be myself around people and then people won't like me and then they will leave me alone yeah. um then th that just makes the anxiety worse now i've i know in my heart an rational part of me knows if i'm starting to spiral if i'm starting to get really anxious i've got to reach out it doesn't even have to be like 
reach out nervously, just be like, hey, what did you have for lunch today? Just to talk to someone because all of the good feelings, that's when I'm just happiest, is when I'm relating or experiencing things with other people. And my anxiety, which I like to anthropomorphize, tries to keep (laughs) me from doing it. I don't know what that word is, but well, yeah, because like if you as soon as you take yourself out of that cycle, like you have you you've willingly done that. And then there's that other piece of grief, which is like, why am I like this? Right. Why do I why do I take myself out of these kinds of situations? Like I know in my heart of hearts that there is nobody out there saying, gosh, I wish I didn't have that Pete in this party. Um, But that's what I'm saying. Like nobody likes that Pete. The rational part knows that, but it's being heavily out yelled at by the irrational part right right i didn't even like how all those words went together (laughs) i know and so why would who who likes that tom (laughs) i just put myself in my own zoom breakout room (laughs) to self-isolate where where do you think that comes from for you I, I have a hard time with it like when i look it's not like i didn't like i didn't feel like i was never locked in the basement one of my earliest strongest memories Meaning it's not one of, it's early on and it's very, I can remember it all the time, is staying over at my grandparents' house. My grandparents, my late grandparents lived at a place called Kroll Road that was sort of out in the country. We had all arrived the night before and I was going to be staying with my grandparents for like a week while my parents went on some sort of trip. I don't remember when. And we all went to bed that night and I woke up early the next morning because I heard something, and I remember peeking out of the window and seeing my parents driving off. And I hadn't oh. been able to say goodbye to them. They yeah. they didn't know that I was awake. And it felt... And this is... It's not abandonment. My grandparents loved me, and I loved being there. But that feeling of, wait, I'm being left in a nervous situation, and everyone thinks I'm doing fine, everyone thinks I'm asleep, but I'm not. So it felt alone, it got into my sleep issues that we've talked about ad nauseum, Um, and all of those things, remembering that car driving up the really long, rocky path. How old were you then, again? Very young. I don't remember, but like, short pants. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, I mean, I was speaking, but I it was very young. So, uh, Freud, you know that old that old kick yep. in the pants, little weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> so he says this is all about object relations. It's called object constancy. It's all. Oh, in let me guess. The driveway was a penis. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. In this case, it was not. Uh, but but it is all about how we, uh, as we develop, we our emotional connection to an object, and an object can be a person or a, a thing or a, you know or a place. Our emotional connection with that develops and is very very strong. And when you're very young, you don't realize that your connection to the object is not directly related to your presence with the object that you can go far away and realize that the object is okay oh object constancy uh, object constancy that's exactly right right. and so like as you get older you understand that important relationships are not damaged by watching them drive out of the driveway Hmm. right you're it's okay and so 
but if you're if you struggle with object constancy, then all that happens when you leave that object or that person or that whatever, when you sell a car that you were attached mm. to that you named, right? You know, people have those kinds of connections. It feels like you're letting them down when you're not present with them, when you're not there to give them 100% of yourself at all times. And there, that is associated with grief. That's one potential like examination of of where it comes from there are others right and and one of them is is the story uh, archetype which is that you know um uh, mythology is filled with you know stories of jilted lovers rejected lovers and heroes that leave their family and yep. village and all of these stories and uh, you know uh young the uh dynamic duo freud and young yep he says that myths and legends are now a part of our collective unconsciousness, mm-hmm. that we have internalized these things, just like, you know, culturally, uh, we may have internalized concepts in and around the American dream, right? Because it's been around for, you know, more than 200 years thinking about what it means. And so abandonment has become a part of our collect connective fabric in, mm. uh, in humanity. And so... When we see signals that trigger those experiences, we then erupt in grief. And I think that's really interesting, too, because it's all about connecting this sort of global myth to our own personal myth. That sounds a lot like Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and the hero of a thousand faces, how we just so many of our stories are just repeated forms handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down. That's really interesting. That's right. That's right. That we are wired by just being human, to recognize the signals of these things by the fact that we are born, right? Right. That we know them. And then they're triggered and exacerbated by our own personal experiences and memories and that image of your parents driving away and Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. I figure if I keep saying it, maybe that's exposure therapy. Oh, interesting. Remember your parents parents driving driving away? away? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So the, the signs of fear and abandonment are... Talk about legion. Like there are a lot of mm. things that that will help you note whether you're you're feeling this. And I gave you that little quiz. Yeah, in the you beginning. just gave me like twenty of them, and yeah. I pass failed with flying sad colors, <laughs> <laughs> with a rainbow made of tears. <laughs> well, this is this is interesting because I just want to bust down this list um, that was uh, cobbled together from the uh, wonderful Lisa Fritcher and Dr. Stephen Gans, oh, uh, who said, uh, "Yeah, good work." He does good work. Uh, Do you attach quickly even to unavailable partners, uh, people who are clearly not available to you? Do you fail to commit fully, have very few long-term relationships? Do you move on quickly just to ensure you don't need to get too attached? Do you aim to please? Do you engage in unwanted sex, particularly uh, a a big symbol in uh, or signal in women? Hmm. Um, Stay in relationships no matter how unhealthy they are. Struggle with being hard to please or nitpicky. Are you tough to order with at a restaurant? Uh, do you have difficulty experiencing emotional intimacy, feel insecure and unworthy of love, find it hard to trust people, jealous of everyone you meet, find yourself comparing to others often, uh, feelings of general anxiety and depression, hold my beer, uh, tend to overthink things and work hard to figure out hidden meanings, are you hypersensitive to criticism, contain repressed anger and control issues, are you easy to enrage, and do you engage in self-blame frequently? It's interesting. I mean, I don't want to go through it step by step, but I very right. much embody some of those and very much do not 
yeah other things quick to enrage harbor things tough to be come sort of intimate emotionally with someone those aren't things that i have struggles with but yeah, a lot of right. those other things really are yeah they really nail it and i think that's the whole the the whole challenge of this in particular and why it's so important to get to know yourself right and to have these kinds of conversations with yourself because this is a bouquet of signals mm. that can describe a whole bunch of different conditions. Right. But it may be when you start poking at some of these, you find, hey, that sounds an awful lot like me and my personal history and my memory of my childhood and my experiences with people lead me to believe that maybe I have abandonment issues and I'm terrified of figuring that out. And I'm going mm. into full ostrich syndrome. You know, I'd rather just put my head in the sand and not worry about it because asking questions yeah. only gets you got. When instead, we should become emus! <laughs> Charge right at it! <laughs> yeah, the feathers of 20,000 emus! We are emus! <laughs> so much for not abandoning us during this episode. This week's tune is It Blows My Mind by Asaf Ayalon. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Tommy Metz Third. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell? Uh-huh.